It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Welcome back, everyone. Glad to have you here today on the show, veterans lawyer Francis Jackson. Francis Jackson is an attorney who specializes in disability law for those seeking veterans disability benefits and social security disability benefits. He's a founding partner of Jackson McNichol. He most recently appeared as a guest of Ben Glass on the Consumer Advocate Show discussing benefits for veterans and social security disability benefits and how his practice allows him to make the difference in the lives of people facing disability. Francis has been featured on NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox network affiliates around the country. He's also been quoted in USA Today and is listed in Cambridge's Who's Who. Francis was honored by the National Academy of Bestselling Authors with a Quilly Award for his contribution as a joint author to the bestselling book, Protect and Defend, where he wrote about protecting one's rights to veterans' disability compensation. Also, in 2017, Mr. Jackson was inducted into America's Most Trusted Lawyers for his outstanding work in disability law. For more information, visit VeteransBenefits.com. That's VeteransBenefits.com. This is the kind of episode, before I get Francis on the show, that we that I, I just employ you with all of my heart to share because the work that's being done here is so vitally important. Our brave men and women who risk everything for us sometimes have to come back and fight for their disability benefits. It's a terrible thing, and the government is extremely slow sometimes to work with and respond, as you guys probably know. Anyway, check out VeteransBenefits.com. Let's share this episode with everyone. Francis Jackson, welcome back. Thanks, Bert. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. All right, I want to jump into this. Um, you know, recently there was a uh, a, uh, a piece on uh, that appeared in the Washington Post, um, and I wanted to get your thoughts about this because it caused quite a bit of an uproar. So give us uh, your, your thoughts on this uh, recent Washington Post editorial. Sure. Well, as you know, Bert, on April 3rd, the, uh, the Post published a, an editorial, and essentially the thrust of the editorial was that – we need to look at the whole system of veterans benefits. And the the post pointed out correctly that um, from um, uh, 2001 to the present, the portion of the national budget that goes to veterans benefits has increased dramatically. It was $45 billion, which is not exactly chump change in 2001, and it was over $300 billion in 2023. And that's just a big chunk of the budget. So the, the Post said, you know, we ought to look at this and we ought to think about whether there are things that we could do. And one of the things, that, one of the points that they made was that the Congressional Budget Office, which, as you know, researches these things, estimated that if we reduced payments for veterans who earn more than $170,000 per year, that would save about $25 billion a year uh, or over $250 billion over the next decade. And the Post said, you know, 
um, maybe we should look at this. And as, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, that's what we do with Medicaid. If people are high earners, we give them a much higher premium. We don't give them the same benefit as people who uh, are in the lower income brackets. And keep in mind that veterans benefits are not taxed. So now with Social Security retirement benefits, for example, you pay tax on 85% of the total uh, benefit that's received, but not on even a dollar of veterans benefits. So the Post was saying, look, you know, at some point as we worry about uh, the national budget, and as you know, there's a huge fight going on, on in Congress right now about whether to raise the debt ceiling and whether uh, uh, we have to make uh, budget changes before we can agree to raise the debt ceiling and all those economic issues. And they're supposed to saying, you know, one of the things that uh, we ought to be looking at here is how veterans' benefits and veterans' health care and the cost of those, uh, those things play into the whole national budget discussion. And what they got in return was not anybody talking about how those things should play into the national budget conversation, but just um, unmitigated vitriol from all the veterans groups who said, you know, we risk our lives, we risk our health. There's no reason that anybody should ever cut a dime from any veterans benefit. And while I certainly appreciate that as a veterans advocate, I do think there is going to come a point where in the national budget conversation, there has to be some consideration of how we deal with veterans benefits. And you know, to take an example, say that you're a veteran and you lost your leg below the knee in Afghanistan, clearly entitled to veterans' benefits. You have PTSD. You can't really deal with other people very well. You have to work by yourself. But you're a smart guy, and you used your veterans' benefits to go back and learn computer programming, and now you make 250000 a year as a computer programmer. Do we really need to give that person $1,600 a month tax-free as a benefit, or should we reallocate that money and perhaps use some of what we would have paid to that veteran to pay other veterans who are not as well off economically? That's one of the questions that at some point uh, people are going to have to wrestle with. Now, I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know uh, what the proper balance is, but I do know that given the rate at which the cost of caring for our veterans has accelerated over the last 20 years, at some point, Congress is going to have to look at this issue and make some choices. They can make good choices. They can make bad choices. Um, As we know, Congress sometimes doesn't make the best possible choices, but at some point, we're, we're going to have to look at the issue and think about it and talk about it. Well, here are my thoughts. Here are my thoughts on this, because I, I, I thought this was a very – like you mentioned, this is, this is something that's got to be dealt with. 
So my first thought is the Washington Post, the 10 members of the Washington Post editorial board, none of them have spent any time serving in the military. Yep. So that was my first thing. And so I always discount those opinions of people who have never served. Because it's so easy for us who have not served, and this includes myself, I've not served. Uh, and it's easy for us to, some, to, to, to judge these veterans uh, and, and say, you know, to say whatever we want to say, but in, until you actually, you know, served, I, I, think, I think your opinion needs to be discounted drastically. My other thought is just like the military, for the most part, is a volunteer thing. Our, you know, uh, yes, we've had, we've had the draft um, a few times, but generally speaking, the, the, the military is, is a volunteer thing. And I think that the easiest thing to do is to allow these veterans that are doing well, and maybe they don't need the, uh, the, the, the whatever it is, the, the, the $1,500, $1,600 a month that they're getting. I think it should be their choice. They should be able to volunteer voluntarily either you know, to, to reduce that or something. And maybe in exchange for reducing their, their veterans' benefits, so it, like you said, it can go help somebody else, maybe they get some kind of tax incentive for that. that that's kind of my thought. And, but like yep. you, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, something's got to be worked out. I don't think that Congress, majority of Congress people have not served, should, should make that decision. Uh, I know that this has been played with a few times, uh, but but I, I really just think that that uh, it, it could be done on a voluntary basis because as you pointed out, you know these veterans that you know they've risked it all. They put their their life on the line, and some of them come back with injuries and PTSD, and 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 I think that it seems. I don't know, it seems un-American to say, hey, because you are doing so good, we're going to penalize you and take away something that we promised you. It just doesn't feel right to me. Uh, it's almost like a, a success tax. <laughs> right? Hey, I like that. I like back. that line. Yeah. You come back uh, from service and 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 uh, and and you you recovered. You put your life together. You overcome your injuries and your PTSD. And look at you. You're a huge success. We got to take away some of your money. Just doesn't sit right. Uh, it seems un-American to me. That's kind of my thoughts. But it is such an interesting thing. And I think, and I've said this before, not just about veterans, but here's our, our budget that is constantly stretched and, and uh, bickered about and argued about. The reality is, is that there are, there are many, many 
massively wealthy corporations like Walmart, like uh, ConAgra, uh, some of these massive, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, agricultural uh, companies, corn, sugar, that get massive multi-billion dollar subsidies, uh, subsidies from our government. But yet, we're going to look at the veterans to take away their benefits. Why don't we start with these super wealthy corporations who are getting billions of dollars. Let's trim the fat there and give that money to these less able veterans. I mean, it's a win-win. You're you're taking money away from these wealthy corporations that don't need it and giving it to the people that do. That sounds good to me, Bert. Now, if we can just persuade Congress, we're all set. (laughs) Here we are on Money for Lunch. We just solved the problem. Let's get <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, and uh, but but it is an interesting it is an interesting thing. I mean, uh, bottom line is we have a a finite amount of budget. And anyway, we'll see what happens. But uh, I hope that you'll keep us appraised of updates as it moves forward. I will certainly do that, Bert, and I, I, I should just, um, for anyone who's concerned, who's listening, let me just say that uh, the most recent word from Congress is that veterans' benefits are off the table in the budget discussions. Nice. Good, good. All right. Uh, I want to talk about something, uh, you and I had talked about this in the past, um, and this is the issue of medical malpractice claims by soldiers. And and I think, if I'm not mistaken, is it, is it pronounced the, the Ferris Doctrine? F-E-R-E-S, Ferris Doctrine? Let's talk about that. Okay. Well, just as a quick refresher, Brett, um, you'll remember that the Ferris Doctrine goes like this. If you're an active duty military person, you cannot sue the uh, military or any element of the government, even if the military doctors uh, commit serious medical malpractice and leave you in real bad shape. And so that's been the doctrine for many years, since 1954, when the Supreme Court said, well, you know, we can't have these people in the service suing the service. That, that wouldn't be good for morale and wouldn't be good for the chain of command and so on. So what happened was after a number of years, Congress finally put through a bill that said, okay, um, you at least can make a claim for medical malpractice. And we've set up this um, administrative claim process within the Department of Defense and they can look at your medical malpractice claim and we'll, uh, we'll do it that way. So that bill got its, uh, its name from um, a gentleman named uh, Stayscal. I never pronounce it right, Master Sergeant Richard Stayscal. And the reason that his name got put on the bill is that he was kind of the poster child for military medical malpractice. They missed um, 
a uh, uh, spot in his lung and he ended up with advanced lung cancer after having been misdiagnosed at Fort Bragg and they didn't catch it when they should have and he ended up in a world of hurt. So that finally got passed in the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act, uh, allowed uh, service members to file claims. So they finally got around to processing Sergeant Stacegall's claim. And he had made a claim for $20 million for this um, uh, problem with uh, them letting the lung cancer become so advanced it almost killed him. And his wife had made a companion claim for what's called loss of consortium, meaning loss of the ability of your spouse to do the things they normally would do in the marriage. Sure. And the, uh, the net result was that uh, Sergeant Stacegall just got his uh, decision from the Army Claims Service, and they told him that they didn't think he really qualified for the medical malpractice claim, but um, the Secretary of the Army had special discretionary funding authority, and they would use that to pay him $600,000 to settle his claim. Um, you know, and 600000 is a pretty good chunk of change, and lots of people would be happy with that, but Sergeant Scalescout said, you know, given all the circumstances of my case, that's not enough. And so he's going to appeal. And in the in the process of looking at his case, the folks that have uh, provided all the information about it looked at all the claims that had been processed by the Army under this new law. There have been 155 of them so far. And of those, 144 of the 155 have just been outright denied. So uh -huh. um, that's kind of where we are. The Ferris Doctrine seems to have uh, simply moved underground. The, uh, the Department of Defense is not rushing to pay these claims. So that's, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of the latest on it. Um, it's, uh, it seems unfortunate to me that the bulk of the claims are being denied because I know from personal experience that there are some valid medical malpractice claims out there. Obviously, I haven't seen all these 144 that were denied. I there are probably several of them that should have been denied. Who knows? But um, it seems an awfully high percentage of denials. So we'll we'll just see where that goes. Um, as I said, Sergeant Sayscale is uh, is appealing, and we're going to see where that uh, where that ultimately falls. But they did at least offer him what I thought was a a significant amount of money. It may not be adequate to compensate him, but it's not chump change. But we'll just see where it goes. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I don't know. I, I think that I'm sure that uh, he reviewed the offer with his attorney. And I think that when somebody almost kills you, 600000 seems hard. a bit small. It's hard to put a price on that. Yeah, yeah. And... and, and, and the the loss of consortium I think is a real thing in some cases especially when you're you know you're slowly dying and you uh, you know and, and and all the stress and emotional 
uh, you know, there's financial stress, emotional stress, I, I guess, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I think 600 grand is a little light. I mean, I think if, if they come back and maybe offer something, I don't know, a couple of million bucks, maybe he'll take that, but uh, wish him the best of luck. And, and uh, you know, I, I kind of see his point. I agree. All right. Hey, so I wanted to ask you this, uh, because this, this topic is constant is regularly on in the news and, and uh, uh, every now and then when I go to the uh, uh, let's see what's that website called um, the uh, the VFW.org I know they, they talk about traumatic brain injury pretty regularly as well um, anyway so we had talked about this last year and and the Pentagon had a new process for dealing with traumatic brain injury cases. How is that going? Well, uh, it's going. Um, how, well it's going is, uh, <laughs> how, how well it's going is up for grabs. Here, here's where we are, Bert. Um, last year, as you know, the, uh, the Pentagon finally moved toward a, a comprehensive strategy to deal with traumatic brain injuries. And they, they called it the the Warfighter Brain Health Initiative. You know? And the, the, the essence of it was they were going to try to identify every, everyone's baseline brain health and develop policies to try to prevent, identify, and if necessary, treat brain damage caused by combat or um, training exercises or accidents or any other source for, for folks in the military. And the, the idea was that they would monitor people's cognition and try to determine whether there was a, a, a need to enhance their level of cognition or to restore it if there had been a, a uh, traumatic incident that um, impacted cognition. So what, um, what, what prompted that was the, the recognition that Traumatic brain injuries are kind of the, the signature injury from the last few years of, of combat. Um, you know, the, the uh, effects of concussions from IEDs, um, near misses from rockets and missiles, a lot of uh, the incidents of modern warfare uh, tend to physically shake people to a, a level that uh, shakes the brain within the skull and causes it to bounce around and be injured. So the uh, report that just came out is from the Pentagon's Inspector General. And what he says is that uh, they're having a tough time. They, uh, they've had about 450 troops that have experienced brain injury between 2000 and 2022 some now with chronic TBI symptoms. And the, the DOD has been trying hard to take the underlying report and work with it. Um, they've developed this TBI oversight strategy and action plan. And they've tried to implement it. But as with many political things, it seems like they can't get it down to a simple enough protocol to make it workable. Right now, 
they they have a uh, um, system where if a traumatic brain injury is reported, there's supposed to be a 72-hour follow-up, um, and there's supposed to be a standard protocol for that second appointment, and then oversight to follow up on where things go. Um, the difficulty is that the uh, Pentagon's inspector general found that, uh, in, at least in 2021, which is the period covered by the report, they hadn't properly documented and tracked um, the TBIs resulting from uh, one particular attack that the, the inspector general focused on. And they found that they've got this 14-page multi-part acute military concussion evaluation form that goes on for pages and pages. And the doctors find it so uh, cumbersome that basically they don't use it. Uh, of uh, 14 clinics that were supposed to be using the form, 10 of them only filled out parts of the form. Only six of them were using it for follow-up care during the process. And they asked one medical practitioner, and he said, look, the form is not useful and takes too long to complete. So the bottom line is that they're not consistently following the, the process that they've set out. And uh, in addition, they found that the, uh, the records folks were not consistently updating the electronic record health, uh, the electronic health records to uh, include traumatic brain injuries. So it made it very difficult for people to locate and follow up and provide information about it. And the bottom line was that the Inspector General found that only 41% of patients diagnosed with a mild traumatic brain injury ever got the 72-hour follow-up appointment. And that only uh, 33% of the patients actually completed the follow-up. So it's, you know, uh, it's like many other things. It's a good idea. It's not currently being implemented well, and hopefully it'll improve. (laughs) Yes, hopefully it'll improve. I love that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that that is, uh, those are not good stats. 33% received the 72-hour? Yeah, uh, 33% actually followed up with the 72-hour follow-up. And you know, the, the, the good thing about this is when the inspector general issues a report, the department has to formally respond to it. And I am hopeful that two things will happen. One, that some reasonable people will actually sit down with the doctors and say, okay, let's cut this stupid 14-page form down to something that you can actually work with. And two, uh, once they do that, they will impress upon the folks who are not using it that we made it workable, now you've got to follow it. Right. Yeah, 14 pages does seem overwhelming. Yeah, that's that's certainly what the doctors think. I mean, these are, these are, keep in mind that these are patients that are coming in as acute injuries. So these are our frontline doctors, trauma, um, emergency room, you know, 
they don't have time to fill out a 14-page form on every patient that comes in. That's just that's just not going to happen. Right. Yeah, that's, that just seems crazy. It's hard to imagine that a team of individuals, I don't know whether it was one or two or five, said, yeah, 14 pages, that's, that's good, that's concise. Well, well you know, we'll I, I, was just at the, uh, I, I was just at the NOVA conference. It just got back, the National Organization of Veterans Advocates. And we had a presentation uh, about hearing loss as it, as it happened. But the fellow who gave the presentation was a, a veteran who worked for several years for the VA. And he was saying, you know, we developed this um, form for evaluating hearing loss. And, you know, we knew that this was going to be for busy doctors. And so we worked on it until we got it down to one page. And he said, then we submitted it. And when it came back from the committee after all the political compromises, it was seven pages and completely unworkable for doctors. And I'm afraid that's exactly what, what happened here. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about this. Um, we have discussed uh, the VA's caregiver program, and I know that, again, there were some possible changes to that. Have there been any updates or any developments? Well, as you, as you may remember, Bert, <clears throat> the VA was talking about revamping the, uh, the caregiver program substantially new guidelines and people who were in the program were very worried about losing their status and being essentially dropped from the program. And that's a big deal because uh, for seriously injured people, the caregivers may get as much as $3,000 a month um, for folks that need pretty much round the clock care. And, you know, less severely injured um, veterans, their caregivers may typically get, you know, half that, $1,500 a month. But, you know, that's that's real money in a household where somebody's seriously injured and, and can't work and right. somebody else is taking away from work to, uh, to take care of them. So the big concern <clears throat> has been that this revamping of the program would mean that a lot of people got dropped. That issue is still up in the air. It has not been resolved. But um, what's going on right now is that President Biden, who really uh, has taken quite an interest in veterans' issues, got everybody together in the executive branch and tried to figure out, okay, what are the various things we can do within the scope of the current laws to help uh, caregivers, and they um, put together an executive order that um, allow, that that provides for 50 different separate actions by various federal agencies to assist child care workers, nurses, home health care workers, and family caregivers to um, provide more services to disabled veterans and and support for their caregivers. And, you know, that I think is a is really a big deal. I, I was surprised, frankly, that the Biden administration uh, went 
as far as it did in terms of getting this really organized and coordinated. As you know, the federal government is a big, sprawling bureaucracy with a gazillion different departments. Um, and the fact that they literally went through what virtually every department does that might bear on this and figured out where they could tweak it in 50 separate ways, I thought was very impressive. But um, President Biden uh, signed that executive order this week, and that um, uh, will provide help. It, it uh, also includes, among other things, a instructions for the VA to develop a pilot program to provide uh, psychotherapy support uh, over video, tel uh, video telehealth for caregivers. which is part of what makes it so difficult to follow. But 
There is speculation, and, and when I say speculation, I, I use that word advisedly. It is just speculation. There is not yet really any proof that a drug that was administered to troops to, uh, to try to prevent uh, health problems may be the underlying culprit, but nobody really knows. So what, um, what is being done right now is the National Institute of Health, which is part of the Department of Health and Human Services, and is the nation's medical research agency, is starting a long-term study in which they are going to um, follow a, a, a large cohort of folks who have these problems and try to figure out what's going on. So um, they um, are looking right now for people who were in the Middle East in the Gulf War and are willing to sign up to be part of this study. So um, we can we can put this up on your website later, but the um, the folks who are interested should contact uh, NIH and it's uh, it's https double slash research dot nims dot nih dot gov slash patients slash va hyphen nih hyphen project hyphen depth. Um, which I'm sure nobody got down as I was saying. But <laughs> it's so short. <laughs> yeah, we can post it. And, and what they're looking for is they're hoping to find um, lots of volunteers and the potential study participants will be referred to NIH. Researchers will ask them to talk about what symptoms they have, try to figure out ways that those symptoms can be measured or observed, they're going to focus primarily on the immune and autonomic nervous systems. And they're talking about having eligible veterans being invited to the, the NIH Clinical Center for up to two weeks for comprehensive testing, including um, peak exercise challenge and various other kinds of, uh, of testing to try to figure out what the symptoms are, how frequent they appear over the entire group and whether there are ways to treat or at least manage those symptoms. They're talking about a five-year program with an initial, uh, initial enrollment that began last July, but they don't have enough people. So they're trying now to uh, uh, enroll more folks from the larger Gulf War veteran community. Um, and so uh, Anyone who's listening to this and is interested should contact the National Institutes of Health and ask to be included. You can contact the local VA for more information about getting included. And after this, uh, Bert and I will figure out how to put the information up on his website so that it'll be easier for people to uh, to make contact. That'd be great. That'd be great. Uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll 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 put it in the show notes. We'll. Uh, and uh, we'll get the information out there because it's this is extremely important. This is the way our doctors and our scientists are able to innovate and and provide better care. Absolutely, Francis Jackson. We're out of time. I want to say thank you so much. 
uh, for uh, serving our men and women. And before I let you go, I do want to ask you this real quick. Um, sure. So let's say I'm a veteran and my claim has been denied. Uh, do you work that, – that's basically when you take over, right? That's when you start getting involved, when, when, when the claims start getting denied. Walk us through the process uh, how, how your team at uh, veteransbenefits.com work a case. Sure. What would happen, Bert, is uh, once there's an initial contact, we'd have an intake specialist talk to the person, try to pin down exactly what um, is going on with their case to the extent they're able to describe it. Then um, if it looks on its face based on that description like something we might be able to help with, we will ask them to sign a whole stack of forms, um, EA forms for this and that and everything else, and to um, send those to us. We tell them up front that the way we charge for this is uh, if we get someone a period of back benefits based on the claim that's already been denied, we will ask for 20% of their past due benefits. So if we get someone uh, $5,000 in past due benefits, we're going to ask them to pay us 1000 And we would only ask them to pay us that if and when we get them the benefits. If it is necessary along the way for us to get a medical report in order for them to win their case, uh, if, as a general rule, uh, we're usually in a position to put up the money to um, pay for that report in advance with the understanding that the veteran will pay us back if and when they get the benefits. If they don't get benefits, we don't ask them to pay us back. Wow. Uh, in terms of the mechanics, um, there are a couple of ways you can go once you get uh, a denial. For lots of people who've had just an initial denial, we'll sign them up for what's called higher level review. That's the quickest process within the VA for claims review. And what it does is it takes the claim and it puts it in the hands of the, the most experienced people at the VA regional office level um, dealing with claims. And so if you had the misfortune to get rated by someone who was new to the system, then remember, after the PACT Act, the VA is hiring literally 100,000 new people. So uh, you may well get someone inexperienced. So uh, what this does is it creates an opportunity for a more experienced uh, claims person to look at your case and see if they can see a way to grant the claim. If that is not successful, and uh, it's often not uh, in all candor, then uh, you have choices. We can, at that point, appeal the board, appeal the claim to the Board of Veterans' Appeals in D.C., uh, or we can file a uh, supplemental claim. Depending on the nature of the denial, we would do one or the other. But typically, we've been appealing those cases to the board. Uh, we're, we're rethinking that and pushing more of them to the supplemental claim lane just because the, uh, the board, despite all the promises with uh, the new AMA Act, that 
that would speed things up. The board is now back to being three, four, even five years for a decision. So um, we're obviously not excited about going to the board. Some cases you don't have a choice, but in other cases we can file a supplemental claim with new evidence and have a, a reasonable chance of getting the claim resolved that way. If that fails, of course, then you're off to the board regardless. Um, at the board level, if you if you are successful, the board will either grant the benefits, um, that's about 20% of the time, or send the case back to the regional office for them to work it up more, and that's much more common, unfortunately. But that's kind of the, the quick, uh, quick and dirty overview. Awesome, awesome. Um, and, and again, uh, you know, those who have listened to uh, some of your stories, we know that some of these claims can take an enormous amount of time. Uh, you're there to hold their hands through the entire process. I love that about what you guys do. And uh, Francis, thank you so much for stopping by today. Totally appreciate you, your visit. Bert, thank you for, for I, I know we've gone a little long today. I, I appreciate you taking the extra time so we could explain a little more to our veterans. Absolutely, absolutely. Good stuff there from Francis Jackson. He is a specialist where it comes to veterans benefits. Um, guys, check out veteransbenefits.com, veteransbenefits.com. And you're thinking to yourself, man, uh, I don't know if this stuff is useful to people that I know who are in the military. Great. Just send them the information. Share the episode. Let them make the decision. Here's, here's what we all hope, including Francis Jackson and his team. We hope that you never have to hire Francis Jackson or an attorney like him. We hope that you get your veterans benefits fully uh, compensated without any issues. That would be great. But if in the case that you're maybe you're being denied your benefits, you're struggling to get your benefits, maybe you're not getting all of your benefits, go to veteransbenefits.com. Check it out. Let Francis and his team evaluate your case. Uh, it, it, it doesn't cost you anything to talk to them. I don't want to sound like an infomercial, but I'm passionate about helping our veterans, just like Francis Jackson is. So check out veteransbenefits.com. Uh, and, and I think that your, your people will appreciate that so very much. Uh, remember, you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.